Thanks for listening to the Sugar Hill Church podcast. To hear more sermons and to find out more about our church, please visit sugarhillchurch.com. This morning, uh, we are starting a brand new series that is called One Month to Live. Called One Month to Live. And uh, man, I, uh, I've had moments in my life where I've been reminded of the frailty of life. But to be honest, it's, it's so easy, isn't it, to get so busy it's so easy to get so spread thin. It's so easy to get sort of caught up in the day-to-day, the day-to-day, day-to-day that we forget that life really is brief. Life really is I think so often we act like we're going to live forever on this earth. We act like that, 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 you know, we've got Kevlar on our bodies, that we're bulletproof, that, that we're going to, you know, we're going to be able to maintain the way that we are and that uh, we, we don't think about tomorrow. We don't think about today because we don't think about that life really is short. We don't. And uh, I've had moments where I've been reminded of the brevity of life. Last week, a week ago, Saturday, I preached a, a funeral for a gentleman 92 years of age over in Lawrenceville. And uh, man, I, I, as I preached that funeral, I had mixed emotions of being there. I mean, anytime I go to a funeral home or anytime I go to uh, a hospital, anytime I go to a nursing home, a rehabilitation facility, I, I, I've, I'd be gut level honest, transparent. I've got tension about being there. I mean, there's part of me that wants to be there because I want to give hope to people. I want to open scripture. I want to pray for them. But at the same time, often those environments bring up some raw uh, emotion inside of me, brings up some raw memories inside of me. Because when I walk into those places and when I stand up to preach one of those funerals, I'm reminded of my loved ones, people that I was close to, people that impacted me. I'm reminded of their funerals that I preach. I mean, one of the first funerals I preached was for my great aunt. Her name was Myrtle Eunice McGraw. Anybody know any Eunices? Anybody? Really? Wow. So here's Myrtle. She was my great aunt. But in a lot of ways, she was like a second mom to my dad. I mean, she, she was awesome. She never married. She just invested in the rest of her family and her, and uh, sort of a lot of her years, she took care of her mom, my great grandmother. And so as a kid, we went over to her house all the time. I love going to her house because I knew she was always going to have two things. I knew she was going to have a jar of, uh, just, uh, cherry juice, I guess you call it, just cherry juice so that my brother could make a homemade cherry Coke. And so I thought that was cool. And then the second thing she was always going to have was she was always going to have ice cream sandwiches in the freezer for me. And as a kid, you know, everything revolves around candy and sugar and you're like, sign me up, I'm going. So, uh, man, we, we spent a lot of time at Myrtle's house in Montgomery, Alabama, and I loved it. But from Myrtle, I learned some, some very practical things. I learned to save, to give, and to enjoy life. She was a school teacher for, for most of her career. She never made a lot of money. She never spent a lot of money on herself. Instead, I saw her model saving. I mean, by the time she passed away, even as a teacher, she had this uh, investment that, that went on far beyond her life. I saw her give away a lot, give away cars, give away money, give away clothes to people. And I saw her enjoy life. So I enjoy life. And so when I'm preaching that funeral last week, she's one of the people I thought of. I thought about that, that I think she was the first funeral I ever preached. The second person I thought about was my granddad. My granddad's name was Bill McGraw. He, he lived to be 94 years old. And one of the things that he was most excited about is that 94, he still had all of his teeth. So I guess 
You know, I guess, uh, in fact, I've got a crazy picture of, yeah. I've got a crazy picture of him somewhere where I'm like, let me see your teeth. And so he's got this super big grin on his face. So I didn't show you that one, but th- there I am with them. And that's my niece on the far left and my four foot 10 mom right there. And uh, my granddad was awesome. 94 years old. Again, he was a teacher. He was a graduate of University of Alabama. I didn't hold that against him. Um, sorry, is that too close to home? Anyway, so uh, uh, I learned from him that family and the future matter. Family in the future matter. Family in the future. He 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 loved, He would do anything for his family. He'd do anything for his family, and he always planned for their future. And so even now, my grandmother and my aunt are still able to live a comfortable lifestyle because my granddad, instead of investing in himself, invested in them so that for the rest of their lifetime, they're taken care of. And so I learned that. So, so I, I preached his funeral a few years ago. So I thought about when I'm up there, I've, I've got this tension because I want to be there for this family, but I have all of these raw emotions bubbling up inside of me because I'm thinking about my granddad. I'm thinking about my great aunt. The third person I thought about was my dad. Now, y'all promise not to laugh at this picture, right? Or is it art? Why are you laughing? Man, I had the total 90s hairdo going, didn't I? I mean, the, the swoop, the deal. That's my brother in the middle. Uh, my dad on the far right. Uh, five and a half years ago, some of y'all know this story. I, I shared it about a year ago. But five and a half years ago, my dad, 58 years old, served in the military 37 years, um, healthy, Six foot four, 250, 60 pounds, big guy, uh, had retired from the military and was getting ready to, he was in his final years with, uh, with the Federal Aviation Administration, about to retire from a federal job, thinking about the future, thinking about all the trips he was going to take with my mom and with my granddad and all those kind of things that we're going to do. And then five and a half years ago in September of that year, uh, diagnosed with a very aggressive form of cancer. And, uh, Man, I, I was traveling at that time, so I wasn't home all the time, but I would, anytime I was able to get home, I'd go to the doctor with them, went to the surgeries with them. And every time the doctor was upbeat, every time the doctor's like, we're going to hit this, we're going to treat this, we're going to, you know, we're, we're, we're going to do whatever it takes. And that, and that was my dad's attitude as well. 58, big guy, strong guy, do whatever it takes. And uh, about three months into that treatment, he just his health just took a sudden decline, and so the last month, uh, from December third through January seventh, so for that last month and a couple of days, he was in ICU almost that whole time. He was only home during his treatment for about a week, right before Thanksgiving. And uh, man, I'm telling you, even that right before Thanksgiving, I'm thinking, man, we're going to fight this thing. Hey, this thing's going to be, we're going to be able to come back and we're going to tell a story of victory and success of how God worked and how God moved. And I'm telling you, uh, I didn't realize how bad this was. I mean, I, I really didn't. I, I thought, hey, I, I'm hearing my dad say, let's do whatever we need to do. Let's hit it hard. I'm hearing the doctor say, hey, we're going to uh, treat it aggressively. And so in my mind, I'm thinking, we're going to beat this thing. In my mind, I'm thinking, this is going to be one of those stories that that where we saw victory come through. And what I didn't know when I was home for that Thanksgiving is that in a month and a half, my dad was going to be gone. I guarantee you, If I had known that he had about a month left to live, I would have done some things differently. Isn't that true for you? Haven't you had 
experienced the loss of a loved one, the loss of a, of a family member. And I'm telling you, I guarantee you, if I had known, if I had known he had, when he was diagnosed he had four months to live, and then if I'd known at Thanksgiving he had one month to live, I would have done some things differently. I mean, I, I would have quit my job. I would have moved home for that season. I could have done it. I, I, I could have been there, but I thought it's going to be this long process. I thought not a big deal. We're going to treat it. We're going to get over it. And I guarantee you, if I'd known, I would have done something different. See, when I was preaching that funeral last week, I thought about my great aunt. I thought about my granddad. I thought about my dad. You know what I was reminded of? I was reminded that this life is short. I mean, even the longest life, that that gentleman last week, 92 years, even the longest life is still short. Life is brief. And so we better do something that really matters. And so over the next several weeks, we're going to be unpacking this truth. But today I want to set it up. I want to introduce it because here's what I know. Here's what I know is even though I had those reminders from my granddad, my great aunt, from my own dad, here's what I know about me, and it may be true of you, is that even though I've had those moments where I know that life is short, that death is certain, that I need to make sure I live for something that matters, what happens a week later, a month later, a year later, five years later, we get so busy, we get so distracted, we get so caught up, and we forget that today matters. And here's what I know about the life of Christ. When Jesus stepped out of heaven and he stepped onto this earth, he knew the day he was going to the cross, didn't he? In fact, what we read about in the Gospels is the closer he got to the cross, the more focused he became. The closer he got to the cross, the the closer the time came about for him to go to the cross and lay down his life, he got even more focused. And so here's what I want to do today. I want to ask the question, well, what did Jesus do when he knew he only had a limited time left on this earth? What is it that, that Jesus, God himself did when he knew there was coming a day he must go to the cross? He said that over and over again. He'd say to disciples, I'm going to the cross. He'd say to the people around him, I must lay down my life. And as we look at his life, what I think we'll find today is four universal principles that begin to rise right out of scripture to say, today matters. Life is short. Death is certain. So let's make sure that this day matters. If you have your handout, I'm going to ask you to follow along and just fill in the blanks. The question is, what, what, what should we do? What should, well, what did Jesus do? Big point number one. Big point number one. When Jesus knew that he was leaving this earth, number one, Jesus lived passionately. Jesus lived passionately. Jesus didn't just mope around. Jesus didn't have sort of that Eeyore sort of mentality. Well, you know, do, 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 you know. I can't believe I just did that. But you know what I'm saying? I mean, he didn't just sort of mope. We all know people like that, that when you're around them, it sort of sucks the life out of you. you, you you're, you're upbeat and you're like, hey, how, how's everything going? And they just sort of bring, they sort of suck the emotion, sort of the upbeatness out of the room. Well, that's not the way Jesus was. In fact, uh, just write down the verse, John 10, 10, write down John 10, 10. Here's what John 10 says. This is such a familiar passage. This is part of a teaching Jesus does that we usually call the good shepherd. He uses this illustration. He uses this story to, to illustrate to us his relationship with us, that he's the good shepherd. We're his sheep, if you know him personally. And listen to what he says in the middle of the story. He's talking about sheep and he says, verse 10, the thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. 
He's using this imagery. He's saying, look, I'm the shepherd and you're the sheep. And just like when there, when, when there's a physical shepherd that has physical sheep, he's saying, just like that, there are, there's a thief that comes. There's a thief that comes at night in the cloak of darkness that tries to steal sheep, that tries to kill street, sheep, that tries to destroy that. And here's what Jesus says. There is a thief. And what I believe for a lot of us, I know it's true of me, is a lot of times we don't think about there being a thief. We don't think about that there is an enemy. See, here's what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that, that yes, there's this physical world that we can see with these eyes, but there's also a spiritual realm around us. There's this unseen world around us that you can only see with the eyes of your heart. See, in the Bible, there is, there's an enemy. We call him Satan. We call him the devil, uh, 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 you know, Lucifer. We call him by a lot of different names, but he's the enemy. He's the thief. And just like in this passage, there's a thief that wants to steal, kill, and destroy. There is an enemy called the devil that wants to undo. I'm telling you, he wants to undo whatever God is up to. I mean, his desire is to, uh, to unravel everything that God's doing in a home. He, his, he, what he wants to do is unravel what God's trying to do in a church, in a growth group, what he's trying to do in your company. Anytime God is at work, that places a target on that thing, and the enemy wants to still kill and destroy that. And what I've found so many times is that while we may know in our head that there's an enemy, maybe we've, you know, we've sort of spoken of there being an enemy, we don't really take that seriously, do we? I mean, I know I didn't. I mean, whenever I thought about the devil, I thought about some guy with a pitchfork and some crazy hat on. I thought about, you know, that guy that, that's sort of sitting on your shoulder. You know what I'm talking about? Right. In a lot of ways, I sort of thought about him as some cartoon and I didn't think about him actually being an enemy. But all throughout scripture, you see this, especially Ephesians chapter six, Paul's writing to these churches and he says, we got to put on the full armor of God. Why? Because our war is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and spirits and and dark for That's what Paul's saying. When Paul said that our war is not against flesh and blood, that wasn't just a cute saying. He wasn't, he didn't write that to say, hey, one day they're going to make a bookmark and they're going to sell it at the Christian bookstore. So let me write something profound. When Paul wrote that, he meant it. That there's an enemy. There's an enemy that's trying to attack your marriage right now. There's an enemy that's trying to attack your kids right now. There's an enemy that would love to attack our church right now. And here's what Jesus says in the middle of that moment. In John chapter 10, verse 10, he says, even though there's a thief that comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy, Jesus says this, but I have come that you may have what? That you may have life and have it more abundantly. So in other words, Jesus isn't having the, this just survival, just sort of get by mentality. Jesus didn't have this mentality. Hey, we're just going to try our best and whatever's going to be is going to be. Instead, Jesus says, I bring you a better, a different kind of life that's better quality. And Jesus lived his life passionately. He lived his life passionately. Can you imagine that in our lives, instead of just getting up and day by day saying, well, I guess whatever's going to be is going to be, instead of us just watching the news and getting depressed all day long, what would happen if we say that I may live on this earth physically, but I belong to the king that's in heaven? And Jesus, when he knew that he had a little bit of time left, number one, he lived his life passionately. 
He was on a rescue mission. Every place he went, every time he saw sickness and darkness and hurting, he didn't explain it away. He didn't say, well, let me tell you what, what I'm trying to teach you through this moment. Instead, whenever he saw darkness and hurting, he drove it out. Whenever he saw darkness, he brought light into that dark situation. Can you imagine if we lived with that kind of passion to say, you know what? I may not have all this figured out. I may not be perfect. I may not have all this memorized and I may not know how it all works together. But the one thing I do know is that if I know Christ, I am the light of God. That's what Jesus said. You are the light of the world. I may not have it all figured out. I may not have it perfect. I, I, I may not, I may not be who I want to be. I may not be where I want to be, but I can be the light of God in my company. I can be the light of God in my family. I can be the light of God at Sugar Hill and Gwinnett and Haiti that we can take the light of God and darkness has to flee. So number one, Jesus lived passionately. Not only that, number two, Jesus loved completely. Jesus loved completely. Jesus wasn't conditional with his love. Jesus never held it over people's head. He's, he was never like, hey, if you do this for me, then I'll love you. Jesus was never like that. Jesus didn't, you know, sort of hide his love behind his back and try to trick us with it and tempt us with this. Instead, Jesus loved completely. He loved without strings attached to it. In fact, here's what Romans chapter five, verse eight says, that, that God demonstrates his own love towards us that even while we're sinners, he still died on the cross for us. So in other words, Jesus didn't wait until we got our acts together, did he? Jesus didn't wait until we were on our best behavior. Jesus didn't wait until we earned our way. And he's like, hey, you're a pretty good person. Now I'm going to die for you. Now I'm going to love you. Instead, the Bible says without strings attached, even while we're sinners, he shows his love by dying for us. It's huge. It's huge. So often we, we use that word love so randomly, don't we? I, I, this weekend I was up in Marion, Illinois, teaching a group of students and investing in them. And I love students, but it's so, one of the things that's so funny about them is, uh, is, is how loosely we use the word love. I mean, we'll, we'll say, hey, I love my mom and dad. Hey, hey I, I love God. And then like four seconds later, they're like, man, I love chocolate malts from Dairy Queen. You know what I'm talking about? Anybody want a chocolate malt now? Can you pick me up one? That'd be awesome, right? Um, <laughs> ADD preacher moment, you know what I'm saying, right? But it's so funny. We, we, we just throw that word out there. Hey, I love God, I love the church, and I love peanut butter, right? I, I, we, we just use it so randomly. We use it so randomly. Well, for Jesus, love costs him something, didn't it? For Jesus, love cost him his life. There was no strings attached. He, he didn't say to Peter, all right, Peter, I'm going to die for you if, you don't deny me three times. He didn't say to uh, John, hey, I'm, I'm going to die for you if you take care of my mom for me after I'm gone. He didn't do it. He said, I, I, I'm going to love completely. In fact, on your handout, there's a couple of verses that illustrate it. It says in John 13, 1, underneath that second point, it says, Jesus knew that his time had come for him to leave this world and go back to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he showed them the full extent of his love. Look at the next verse, Matthew chapter 22, verse 37. You know this verse probably. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And listen to this. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Isn't that exactly what he did? I mean, Jesus spent three and a half years 
uh, surrounding himself with the disciples. He spent three and a half years investing in them. He spent three and a half years just pouring his life into them. And, and because of that, people were drawn to him. The Bible says tax collectors were drawn to him. Sinners were drawn to him. Prostitutes were drawn to him. Yes, they knew he was different. Yes, they knew that he lived at a different level of ethics. But what I'm convinced made Jesus so powerful isn't that he had one message that everybody loves. They're like, hey, man, I hope he he preaches that one message and that'll be awesome. What made Jesus so powerful isn't that he had one story, one illustration that really brought it home and everybody's like, hey, sign me up for that. What made Jesus so powerful wasn't that he had a message. It was that he was the message. Isn't that true? That he lived this out. He loved completely. In the process, all of those people were drawn to him because they knew he was different, but they knew he was real. He was real. And so often in our lives, we allow things to happen in our families. So often we allow drama to take place. So often instead of loving completely, we, we, we hold it behind our backs or we hold it over people's heads. I mean, one of the illustrations of this for me that's so tangible is my dad. Several years before he passed away, he and my grandmother just had this, this divisive uh, disagreement. I mean, they, they, they butted heads on this particular issue, and it drove a wedge in their relationship. So probably the last three or four years of his life, I don't know that he had a meaningful conversation with his mom, my grandmother. I mean, for about three or four years, there's just this wedge driven in where if they did talk, it was just by necessity. It wasn't because they wanted to catch up. And so November of that year leading up to his passing away two months later, he's home for that one week right before Thanksgiving. And my mom gets his mom on the phone and gives it to him. He's sitting there in his wheelchair. And I don't know exactly what all they said, but I know he wept like a baby that night. There's something about getting over our little disagreements. They feel so huge right now, don't they? But in the grand scheme of things, what are we, what are we fighting about? Is, does this, if you only had one month to live, wouldn't you want to love completely? And here's what Jesus did. He lived passionately. Number two, he loved completely. Number three, he learned humbly. He learned humbly. I already alluded to this passage earlier, but in Philippians chapter two, it says this in verse five, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, he did not regard equality with God, something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. He made himself nothing. Listen to what it goes on to say. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in the, in human likeness, being found in the appearance as a man. Listen to this next phrase. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. Think about that. Here's the invisible God becoming visible. Here's the untouchable God becoming tangible. Here, here, here's Jesus who is God. And, and so he's got nothing to prove. He's got nothing to work for. He's not trying to work his way up the ladder and he's God. And so since he's so secure in who he is and what he's called to do, he's able to leave heaven and come to this earth. 
And it doesn't come in the form of a politician. It doesn't come in the form of some earthly king. It doesn't come saying, hey, give me a mansion and a bunch of servants around me. Instead, he becomes a servant. He humbled himself. He took on a form that looks like us. And here's what Jesus said over and over and over again. I did not come to be served, but to serve. If anybody deserved to be served, I think it's Jesus. If anybody deserved to be able to sit back in luxury and to to just enjoy the moment, I think it's him. But instead, Jesus humbled himself. Let me ask us a question. Who do we need to humble ourselves to? That what happens as the older we get and the further away we get from uh, reminders of life is short is we get a little bit arrogant. We get a little bit uh, 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 unteachable spirit inside of us. And sometimes I think we need to become more like Christ and we need to humble ourselves and say, God, what is it you want me to do? So Jesus, number one, he lived passionately. Number two, he loved completely. Number three, he learned Humbly, and here's the last point, number four, Jesus left boldly. Jesus left boldly. I love this passage. I I, I didn't put it in your notes, but if you want to write it down, it's found in Luke chapter 9, verse 51. Luke chapter 9, verse 51. Here's what it says. As the time approached for him to be taken to heaven. So as he knows, hey, I'm about to go to the cross. Hey, I, I know I'm about to lay down my life. I know I'm about to return to heaven. It says this in Luke 9, 51. As that time approached, Jesus resolutely set out to Jerusalem. In other words, here's his last days. Here, here he is. I don't know if it was exactly a month, but here are his last days. He knows my time is limited on this earth. I'm going back to heaven. I'm about to be separated from this earth until I return. And here's what Jesus does. Instead of just, instead of just wasting time, Instead of just sort of sitting back and saying, well, whatever happens is going to happen. Not a big deal. Says he resolutely fixed his eyes on Jerusalem. Jerusalem's where he's going to go through the trial, isn't it? Jerusalem's where he's going to be beaten. Right outside Jerusalem's where he's going to be crucified. And so in his last days, instead of wasting those days, he focused on the one thing he came to do. He was born really to die. The one thing he came to do. And you see this throughout his life. You see it throughout his life, that he left boldly, that what would happen, oftentimes he'd come to church and all the religious leaders would try to trip him up. Every time he came to church, they'd try to distract him. They'd be like, hey, what do you think about this? Hey, Jesus, what do you think about this? Is this a loophole? Is this a gray area? Uh, Do you agree with Moses on this? And every single time they tried to distract him and every single time they tried to get him off his mission, Jesus had this amazing ability to refocus them and to point them to say, here's what I came to do. In fact, Luke 19 is a great example of this. If you want to write this down, Luke chapter 19, Jesus and Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is the sinner. He's a a, a tax collector. Nobody likes him. He rips people off. And here's what Jesus does. He walks into the city. He looks up at that guy that nobody likes, nobody loves, nobody wants to be around. And he looks that guy in the eye and he says, Zacchaeus, I must stay at your house. In other words, there's a lot of things he could have done. I could go to the temple, hang out with the religious elite. 
I could go to uh, the, the, the home of my closest followers and enjoy them patting me on the back. But instead, that's not why I'm here. I'm here to meet with you. He knew what he was here to do. Later in Luke chapter 19, when all the religious people are grumbling, hey, Jesus, why aren't you, why are you hanging out with this guy? Jesus, shouldn't you be doing this? Jesus, shouldn't you be doing that? Hey, shouldn't you be hanging out more at the temple instead of with the sinner? And here's what Jesus says to those leaders. He says, the son of man has come to do one thing, to seek and to save that which is lost. That's the one thing he came to do. Now, let me just tell you, there's a lot of things that we could do, aren't there? I mean, with the, with the, with news that's on 24 hours a day, with emails that get shot to us every single day, with Facebook status updates, uh, updates, we, we're, we're more aware, I think, of needs in our world than ever, aren't we? I mean, it can be crippling just to think about, even on my way in this morning, just to hear about things that are going on or, or my drive back last night from Illinois to think about, hey, uh, here, here's what's going on in this family's life. This family. There, there are so many needs out there. There's so many great mission opportunities. We've got a team that tomorrow, they're, they're going to go to the nursing homes and, and minister in the nursing home. We, we've got a team in Haiti right now. We've got a team of ladies that come up and stuff backpacks every week, put food in them. We, uh, my wife and I, we've got Bible study on Monday. There, there are so many things that we could do. I could do. There's, there, you could do. There's so many things. We, every single night of the week, uh, even in the middle of the day, there's so many things we could do. But I guarantee you, if we did all of those things, if I did all of the things that everybody walked up and said, hey, Bobby, you should do this. Or if you did all the things that somebody says, hey, you should do this. I guarantee you, it, even if you could show up there physically, you wouldn't be there emotionally or spiritually, would you? You'd be physically there, but not emotionally or spiritually there. And so here's what I believe we can learn from Jesus today is I can't do everything. I can't please everybody, but I can do that one thing he's called me to do. Does that make sense? That we would start our day and we'd say, God, there's so much need around me. There's so many mission opportunities. Hey, there's so much stuff going on in our growth group. There's so much going on in the church. There, 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 there's so much I could do, but I can't do it all. Jesus, what is that one thing you want me to do. That's leaving boldly. That's saying, I, I'm not, instead of spreading myself so thin, I'm not effective. I'm going to lean in to that call. I told you on the front end of this that I, I mixed emotions. Anytime I go to a funeral home, anytime I go to the hospitals, anytime I go, a few weeks ago, I went with the nursing home ministry. I, I, I want to be there. I want to minister. Same time, I'm feeling the tug because of everything that I've seen from my great aunt to my, uh, to my grandfather, to my dad. There's so many other stories I could tell you. But I told you there's three or four people that I, that I thought about last week at that funeral. One, great aunt Myrtle. Two, my grandfather, Bill McGraw. Three, my dad, Larry McGraw. But the fourth person I thought about was my wife. The redheaded wonder. She's going to kill me because I didn't tell her or ask her if I could <laughs> show her a picture. The band ratted me out between services. So please pray for me. If y'all don't mind, just write that down. Prayer request for Bobby, right? 
But the fourth person I thought about was my wife. Because no matter how many funerals I've been to, and no matter how often I think about the fact that life is short, death is certain, live for what matters, no matter how, much, how many times I tell other people that, and no matter how many times I stand at a funeral and I'm reminded of that, I get busy. I get, I, I get spread thin. I get, you know, and, and she's working a zillion hours right now. I'm involved in a lot of things, ministry, all, all, all good stuff. But what happens in the rat race of life is we forget to focus on what really matters, don't we? I'm just, uh, you know, I'm just like you. I'm, I'm trying to figure out how do I live for what matters. And so back in January, I, I, I had this wake-up call. I had this sort of reminder where back in January, I was just convicted that, that uh, you know, I've got to be disciplined spiritually, but also need to be disciplined physically. And I, 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 need, to, I need to take care of what God has given me. And I, I, I want to be in ministry for the long haul. And so back in January, I started this program where I got back regularly into Bodyplex, the gym down the road. I got back on eating more of a healthy diet. And I got, you know, back trying to get more rest and, and, and those kind of things. And what happened is right before MLK weekend, so somewhere, I, I don't remember the date of it, but like January 19th, somewhere in that ballpark, the Thursday night before, so the weekend starts that Friday, Saturday, whatever. Well, that Thursday before, um, I, I'd had a heavy week ministry-wise. I was out uh, uh, in hospitals that week. I was meeting young adults across the table for coffee. I was meeting with growth group. I, I, it was just a heavy week where I was just running crazy. And so that Thursday, I, I, I didn't have a lot to eat. I had the option of, hey, the only way you're going to eat right now is if you grab fast food and sort of blow sort of that focus that you're on right now or just skip the meal. And so I opted to skip the meal. Not a good thing. And so I skipped the meal. Uh, I've been doing, uh, for, during that season, I did almost no carbs at all. So my diet just took this drastic swing because I'm a meat and potatoes guy, hot rolls and butter. I love all that stuff. And so I took this massive swing. And then at the same time, uh, I'm a, I, I get migraines from time to time. They go through these cycles. And so there's some medicine that I cycle on and off of to try to help. I'm trying to figure out what, what can I do to try to figure this out. And so I have all of this stuff going on, this crazy diet, uh, not a lot of rest this, that particular week, running hard, not a lot of food. And so that night as we're getting ready for bed, I take a shower, I'm brushing my teeth, you know, I'm doing, you know, normal evening routine. And what happens is somewhere in the middle of that process, Laura comes into the room, she's there. And I say to her, I just don't feel good. And the next thing I remember is her shaking me, saying, Bobby, wake up. Bobby, wake up. Bobby, wake up. Bobby, wake up. I saw her wake up. Again, in this fog, not really, you know, not really coherent. It's like this dream sequence or something going on. And she's shaking me. Bobby, wake up. Bobby, wake up. Bobby, wake up. And then I hear her say, I'm calling 911. I'm calling 911. And uh, I, I, I come to in that process. I come to in that process. And so I, she sits me down on the floor and I become coherent and don't call 911. It's, you know, it's, I haven't eaten. I'm taking this medicine for migraines. It causes, you know, it, I'm sort of rationalizing this because I'm a guy, right? Don't call anybody. <laughs> but it was so heartbreaking 
that as I sat there, she sat down next to me and just started weeping. And that's a wake-up call moment. When the person you love more than anybody else and the person that loves you more than anybody else is crying because they're scared because they think, they thought, I don't know what's going to happen. It was heartbreaking just to hold her and just to just the pain that I just put her through because I made some dumb decisions that day. And then also it's a wake-up call for me because that's never happened to me before. That was, you know, I, I, I'm, other than headaches, I'm pretty healthy. I mean, that, that, that never... And so it's this wake-up call. It's this one thing that says, you know what? Life is short, isn't it? We don't know how much time we have. I don't know how much time I have. So I'm thinking about her that day because what Laura needs is not for me to wait a year to be a better husband. She doesn't need me to wait five years and say, all right, well, in five years, well, she needs me today. I know the pushback, but Bobby, that's morbid. I mean, this is the start of spring break for a lot of people. I mean, <laughs> What? And I stand here just to say, life is short. Death is certain. Let's live for something that matters. Let's love completely. Let's live passionately. Let's learn to be humble. And let's lead boldly.